A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the program. This week... The Hedgehog and the Fox are in the company of philosopher Julian Bugini, and we're in pursuit of no lesser question than how the world thinks, in just over half an hour. Comparative philosophy is a discipline generally left outside the mainstream in the West. Departments of philosophy, which are really departments of Western philosophy, rarely look outside their own tradition to see what thinkers from China or Japan or the Islamic world, to name but three traditions with long histories and rich literatures, have to say on any given question. It's as though the question of the West's supremacy had already been settled, and philosophers from elsewhere could only be of interest to anthropologists and cultural historians. Gillian Bugini disagreed, and has been on a sort of philosophical quest of his own, to explore how the world thinks. His methods, I imagine, would win the approval of thinkers from a wide variety of traditions. He read widely, he travelled, he met people, he asked questions and he listened. His comparative philosophy is not competitive. He's not seeking the one true way, still less homogenising everything in some sort of philosophical blender. His aim is more realistic, certainly more subtle. It's to discover what we can learn, how our thinking can be enriched by attending to traditions other than our own, by shifting the frame, tilting the lens, pondering what our way of doing things might have ignored. Gillian says that working on this book was the most rewarding intellectual journey of his life. So when I visited him at home in Bristol recently, I began by asking him to tell me about the motivation for that journey. Was I right in thinking it grew out of a dissatisfaction with Western philosophy, a sense of its limitations? Yeah, well, there, were, there were lots of motivations, really. I mean, it, partly it was a curiosity, because in terms of the non-Western philosophical traditions, like most people who are educated in, in Western universities, I'd kind of come to believe that they may well be interesting, but whatever they did, it wasn't really what we were doing. And so it's not a superiority complex as such. It's just thinking, it's, it's just not really philosophy as we know it. But, you know, I, I think over the years I came across enough things which made me question that. So the sort of cracks in that worldview began to appear. But secondly, I thought, in a sense, I got less interested over the years about what philosophy is and what philosophy isn't. It seems to be a rather insular and kind of dry, dull question where you put the limits around it. And so I just think that I thought, well, I don't really care if it is not philosophy as we know it. I'm sure it's still very interesting. I mean, such rich literatures and form the cultures 
So I got curious and also, I guess, a bit embarrassed. I think it is true that the debate about the uh, narrow cultural focus of Western philosophy had just got going. And yes, it did make me feel like perhaps my ignorance of these other traditions was something that was somewhat embarrassing. And a phrase I came across writing the book was this idea of the asymmetry of ignorance, meaning that all over the world you'll find your know, Chinese, Indian, African, whatever philosophers, they always know the Western canon as well as their own traditions. The Western philosophers tend only to know their own. So that's how it got interesting. But then it just got more and more interesting the more I got into it. And what became evident quite early on was that although I always had this hope or expectation that in some way understanding the philosophy might cast some light on the cultures of different parts of the world, the extent to which that became true was much greater than I perhaps at first anticipated. So it became a very interesting window into other cultures too. So that, that's one of the sort of fundamental starting points of the project, that there is a relationship between the way people live, the way the culture operates, and what their traditions of philosophy have, have said and concerned themselves with. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting relationship, because in terms of cause and effect, I think it's kind of two-way. I mean, obviously, philosophies emerge out of cultures, and therefore they reflect, to a certain extent, the cultures they come from. But then they also feed back in. Perhaps they they make concrete or make more salient aspects, certain aspects of the culture, and just then get reinforced. And so I think that, you know, it's not that people are walking around with a kind of, any kind of conscious knowledge of what those philosophical traditions are. But the ways of thinking are kind of, you know, almost like hardwired. It's like the software that you run on, as, as one um, African philosopher put it. And I think you can kind of see that in the case of a Westerner. If, if, you're, if you're a Westerner, then you kind of know that we value individual liberty and freedom and democracy is a central value. And if you have a little look at our intellectual history, you can actually see how those ideals are have been articulated and expressed and defended in the philosophical tradition. So there's a kind of philosophical backstory there, which we're not normally aware of. So actually, you know, coming becoming more aware of our own philosophical background is, is important as well. Which actually leads to another point, I think, which is such an interesting point about the project, was it, it's always a kind of two-way thing. So every, every interesting idea you come across, first of all, I think it helps you to understand other ways of thinking. But also, it's never the case, I never found it the case, that there's any idea in another culture which is completely alien in our own. So a line I'm, I'm always repeating now, talking about the book from Tom Kasulis, is that he says what's background in one culture is foreground in the other, and vice versa. And so you, you kind of like have this little mirror cast back to your own culture, and you realise that we've made certain things more salient than in other cultures. And in doing that, we've kind of ignored or neglected other things. And appreciating that can potentially give you the opportunity to change the balance a bit, where things might have gone too far as many people think has happened with individualism, which is the most obvious example, I think. Maybe we'll come around to talking about some of those, those concepts that are, that are absent or, or not salient in Western philosophy. But I wanted to ask you, Julian, really, you're ranging across time and space. How on earth did you plan this project? How did you sort of manage to keep it all within manageable bounds? That's a good one. I mean, I think from the beginning, obviously, you realise if you're going to do global philosophy 
you can't hope to be comprehensive. Well, I can't anyway. There's a, there's a guy called Peter Adamson who is engaged in this remarkable project of writing what he calls a history of philosophy with no gaps. And it's it's taking, it's going to take decades. And he is actually being really, really thorough and systematic. And that's a very worthwhile project and it's extremely admirable. But, you know, I obviously wanted to do something that was going to be more manageable both for me and for readers. And so rather than try and, like, sum everything up, which I don't think is very useful, nor just do a straight chronological run-through, which I think ends up sounding like a list of ideas and names, I thought what would really be most interesting is to try and identify just a handful, really, or ends up being several handfuls, but a relatively manageable number of key concepts or ideas which give you a kind of a way in give you a way of seeing what's different i put it in terms of what you need to understand in order to begin to understand so it's that that entry point so in order to identify those yes you i had to kind of start by reading canonical texts for myself but you know a lot of it was based on interviews with people talking to people initially reading other secondary texts to see what ideas came out and then that kind of got whittled down to a set of concepts. And it was always a work in progress. So the idea of travelling was to just, first of all, speak to people working in their own countries as much as possible. And also just to see a little bit of the culture firsthand. What often happened was, as I spoke to people, you know, the list changed slightly. Certain things perhaps that I, I thought might be a subject of a chapter ended up being absorbed in others or being neglected. But it was quite interesting, actually. I think the final list isn't that far off from the one I came to quite early. And this is a very broad brush question, I know, but would it be fair to say that all the cultures, all the philosophical traditions you look at, do get around to examining the same basic questions, albeit in a different way, perhaps using different tools, different concepts, but there are sort of some fundamental questions that, that require? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the, the, the book's divided into parts, and... You know, one is how how do we know and what do we know? So every every culture addresses that question, you know, what is it to know something? What is the basis of knowledge? There's also that kind of what you might call the metaphysics, an idea about how the world, the universe fundamentally works. You have a conception of self, what it is to be an individual as, as a person. And you also have an idea of how we ought to live, which is ethics and politics. So, yeah, everyone's addressing those same questions, but they do so in different ways. And that can be very illuminating because I think sometimes, you know, it's very easy to assume that the way we approach it, whoever we is, is just the way to approach it. And it's kind of realising that in what appears to be one question, there are sometimes three or four or five different questions i think it's interesting in in the sense of what it is to be a person for example because the the primary question we have in the western modern western philosophical tradition is what does it mean to be an individual person who remains the same person over time to put it in that way it's all about the identity of the individual now that's a legitimate question in any culture but in lots of other cultures, that's not the primary question about what it is to be a self. It's more like the question of what it is to be a self in relation to others. So it's not so much about what makes you different. It's how it is that your relations to others make you who you are and how being who you are somehow depends upon your relationship to others. In a sense, they're two different questions. But of course, they're two questions which are about the same fundamental phenomenon, who we are. 
And so therefore, it's very useful to be able to, to see that, to see that there's more than one way to think about selves. And if you only think about selves in, in one of those ways, you could be missing something quite important. And I think, I think you use the, um, the metaphor of the toolkit at various points in the book. So as well as looking at the way these questions are framed, are you also exploring sort of diff- different methodological approaches to, to common human concerns? Well, there are different methodologies. That's true. I think this is one of the reasons why the Western tradition has been dismissive of others, because in the Western tradition, the methods seem quite clear and they are to do essentially with rigour in argument, which is basically the use of logic, and observation, empirical evidence. So it's, it's kind of scientific in some ways, but also this idea of the, the primacy of, of reason and logic. And I think what you find is that you, you find those things in all traditions, actually. But in other traditions, people use other tools, which some of them, you might simply say, we've kind of rejected. So, for example... In the Indian tradition, a lot still rests essentially on the testimony of you know, seers, the rishis, and in particular sort of the revelations of the early Vedas. And so there's that kind of theological aspect, which for a lot of people makes them think that Indian philosophy therefore isn't philosophy, it's kind of theology. Well, I think what's interesting about that is that although it's true that they have that as one of their sources of knowledge, it's one methodology, if you like. They also do have reason, logic, experience. So what they have to say about those other things can still be relevant to us today. But also, I think it's a useful kind of challenge because why is it? Why is it that we don't think those things are, are, are suitable? I, I personally don't. I still come to the conclusion that I don't think these uh, testimonies are, are reliable. But it's something you should at least be sort of questioning, because why should it not be the case that some people have greater insight than others? Uh, we generally think that some people are better at music, sport, literary criticism than others. So the idea that some people have a greater insight to others perhaps because of their great mental training, is certainly not ridiculous. I mean, that's an example, I think, where understanding better is worthwhile, even if at the end you still don't agree with it. You know, there's a difference between dismissing something sort of mockingly and out of hand because you think it's just silly, and dismissing it because you think, actually, at the end of the day, it's very interesting and you can really see why people do that, but you don't buy it yourself. But other kind of methodological approaches, I think, are ones which I'm more open to. So... For instance, I think all over East Asia, and particularly in Japan, there is a kind of emphasis on, it's difficult to find the right word for it really, but I, the word I tend to use anyway is attending, it's, it's paying, the paying close attention to things. And in your attending, you have a, a kind of a feeling and sense of things. So certain Japanese philosophers describe this to me as the aesthetic character of Japanese thought. Not aesthetic in terms of beauty and art, but perception and sensing. And I think that is something which I have become very sympathetic to, and I would like to sort of develop more. What's interesting about it is, though, that it kind of implies the fact that that kind of sensing and attending isn't necessarily something that can therefore be easily put into words or generate statements and propositions. So learning how to be in the world in the right way, only so much could be captured by words. Now, again, that's something in the Western tradition people become very suspicious of because they think that's like a Trojan horse for nonsense and mysticism and so on. 
And I think the the Japanese tradition, what I've learned from that in particular, has kind of made me think that's not that's not necessarily the case at all. Actually, that accepting certain things can't be put well into words, and attending is important. Doesn't open the door to just anything goes mysticism or something. And I was really interested in what you write about different cultures, attitudes to nature and our place in nature, and also to our place in time. And that made me think about the limitations of of Western rational, atomistic, individualistic philosophy, and think, yeah, we are missing something if we're not thinking about our place in nature and in in time, perhaps not being linear. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a lot going on in what you said there. There's sort of several um, d- dimensions of that. Um, yeah, I mean, nature is a very interesting one. I mean, obviously, it's quite interesting that one of the ways in which Western philosophy distinguishes itself from particularly Indian and Islamic thought is its so-called secular nature. So it's rig- having properly separated itself from theology. In fact, I would argue that if you want to look at the traditions of thought which are more deeply naturalistic, rooted in the natural world and not the supernatural, it's the the East Asian traditions, actually, Chinese and Japanese. These have always had nature at their heart. And although you get expressions like the will of heaven and the way of heaven in China in particular, that's kind of... To say it's a figure of speech may be overstating it, but it certainly doesn't believe there's any kind of divine conscious agency and certainly all the ideas about how to live are about how to live in the here and now ideas of afterlife are absent you know what you get there is a very deep and historically long tradition of thinking about our place in the universe which is thoroughly rooted in this world in the mortality and in the transience of things and how you deal with that i think is really interesting because I think in the West, obviously, we have this strong Christian tradition and, you know, the death of God, for want of a better word, is a fairly recent event. And I think people are still struggling to a certain extent to to work out what the alternative is. Because, you know, even I'm an atheist, but the word atheist is a historical accident. In in China, I wouldn't be an atheist because I wouldn't be defining myself against theism because theism wasn't there. But essentially, I'd be the same kind of thing. So what you see in those traditions are, are, are really resources, insights in, into how to live in a universe in which you're not placing your meaning and, or your end goal in something beyond this world, which gives you an appreciation of things like our mortality and transience, which I think is very profound and is a step up from the kind of rather, I think, desperate seize-the-day hedonism, which is a typical response to believing there's no life to come that you get in the West. But there are other things as well. I mean, you've, you, in what you said, there are many, many other ideas to unpack. I mean, the idea of, of time is interesting as well, uh, and place, because in the book I include, not a huge amount, but someone philosophies which have been transmitted through oral traditions uh, in in Australia, New Zealand, Africa. Now, until very recently, you didn't get hardly anyone taking those things seriously as philosophy. People studied them as folk beliefs, but that was a different category. It was was an anthropological study. Yes, it was for anthropologists only. And, uh, you know, the idea you could learn something from them was not really very seriously taken, philosophically anyway. 
People are taking that much more seriously now. There's been quite a lot in particular African philosophy. And of course, we should also say that African philosophy is not entirely an oral tradition. There are some written texts, uh, particularly from places like Ethiopia and everything, which are still um, coming, coming to light. And um, yeah, in, in those sort of traditions, the way in which space and time are conceptualized is rather different. I find this rather interesting because, of course, if you talk about space-time in to a Westerner, people think, oh, that's physics, that's sort of very odd physics. You know, time and space, the same thing. But actually, it seems like, you know, time and space are quite intimately linked in the way people think about themselves and their lives in ways that has nothing to do with physics. It's, it's much more visceral than that. And it's the idea that, you know, that where, who you are and where you come from, place is always at least as important as time. You are of a land, you are of a place, you are born from it, you go back to it. So in th- talking about, you know, time is a question of priority, this happened before that, and, and there's, 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 it, it's as simple as that, there's not the same kind of idea of, of chronology, and certainly no idea of things working towards some kind of ultimate uh, goal. And yeah, it's, it's the place and belonging which is, which is much more important perhaps than, than time. When a tradition is monotheistic, does that inevitably impose limits on the kind of cross-fertilizations that you've been, you've been talking about, um, for example, in the Japanese tradition? Well, first of all, before I answer that, I'd, I'd just like to, to make the point that obviously in every tradition I'm talking about, there's a huge amount of diversity. And there are all sorts of traps you can fall into of overgeneralization. And I think in a brief conversation like this, almost inevitably, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. It's always very important, though, to, to recognize that there are dominant trends and recurring ideas in every tradition. So it is possible to make tentative generalizations, but they're never universal statements. It's not all Indian philosophies like this, all Chinese philosophies like that, and so forth. In terms of where there's a, a particularly monotheistic religious character... I think, to be honest with you, in any tradition, there are obstacles to cross-fertilisation. And those obstacles differ depending on what the tradition might be. I think in China, for example, there's such a long and consistent tradition of Confucian thought in particular, but also Taoism there. And such a sort of a deep sense of you know, this this heritage and a kind of pride in it, there's almost kind of a... a was a national pride in that you know why would you look elsewhere when you have the oldest greatest civilization in the world in in the western tradition the sources of insularity are to do with a certain confidence in the sort of the methods that we've developed and seeing them as distinctive and having got further from theology and superstition than than in others in terms of i mean the islamic tradition perhaps is the one you, you wanted me to talk about is is a very interesting one because philosophically speaking it had what many scholars call this golden age in, in the middle ages at uh, the time where the islamic world was at its largest geographical extent and i think what's really very interesting and important about looking back to the history of islamic thought is that it provides both a warning and a source of hope. Now, the the warning is that I do think it's the case that in the Islamic world, secularization of thought has 
basically not being permitted. There was a certain struggle. I wouldn't say you can exaggerate the struggle, but there was there were forces of, if you like, the greater autonomy from philosophy from theology. But actually, no one completely separated philosophy from theology, even in that golden age. And so, you know, in the Islamic world, it has to be accepted the fact that there is no philosophy which is completely separable from Islam. So in that sense, the term Islamic philosophy, which some people find contentious, is accurate. It's not just philosophy in the Islamic world. It is, of its nature, Islamic philosophy. But, and this is a really important but, what you find is huge diversity within that tradition and great openness to other traditions. So the philosophes, which was like this movement of philosophers, were taking their lead from Greek philosophy, in particular Aristotle, in an Islamic context, for sure. But they were learning from that and they were building on it. And there were also times of great tolerance and openness. And this idea that, you know, there's a lot of interpretation of what the Quran means and what it requires and what can be done. So I think the, the great hope of studying Islamic philosophy is, I think it's a great antidote to this, I think, rather overly pessimistic idea that we're heading for this inevitable clash of civilizations, that Islam is incompatible with the West. I think you have to be realistic and see that the Islamic world, if it is to remain Islamic, is almost certainly not going to just follow in the footsteps of the Christian, you know, the Enlightenment in the Christian world and reach the kind of secularism we've had now. So I think you have to be realistic about that. But if instead of demand, demanding that of the Islamic world, that you rather have the hope and the encouragement that the more open, tolerant strands of thought within that tradition could come to dominate more than they do now, there's a lot to actually hope for there. The kind of fundamentalism which people feel most threatened by today is the historical exception rather than the rule in Islam. And the philosophical tradition, I think, shows that. Can you think of particular examples of this correlation, this sort of sympathy between the, the way that the philosophical tradition operates and how people live their lives on the ground that you encountered when you were on your travels? Well, I think one would be to do with how we conceive of ourselves as individuals. I said earlier, you know, that there's this, in the West, the emphasis is on the individual, in East Asia in particular, there's this emphasis on relationality. Now, I find this really very interesting and very helpful because, you know, I, I haven't been a huge globetrotter in my life. Uh, I did more travelling for this book than I'd probably done at any other time. And, you know, when you see, say, pictures of Tokyo subway or these busy Tokyo streets and you see these masses of people crossing in this orderly fashion, you know, from the outside, I think that looks like a kind of a herd kind of mentality a conformism everyone's kind of acting the same they're subsuming their individuality into the group and i think that's often the way we we think about these things we think you have two choices basically which is either we all become individuals or we all kind of you know melt into the group and we give up on having an individual identity now what you understand from philosophy and what you see firsthand, I think, if you go to a lot of these countries, is that that's the wrong choice. What actually looks could look like conformism from the outside is actually what I just simply call a pro-social attitude. So people are just very conscious of the fact that they are not isolated atoms, they are existing with other people, and just have more thought for others th th than we do, essentially. 
And the way they think about themselves is always in relation to others. Now, I saw this in lots of many ways. There's quite there's one I could go into more detail on, which is a Japanese teen romance film, which I saw on the plane coming out of Tokyo because I noticed other people were watching it. And what was interesting there was it's a teen romance, but actually it was all about the friendship group. The, 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 the key couple were hardly ever seen alone. And their relationship was always developing in the context of this friendship group. There's quite a complicated time travel plot, which makes this even clearer, but I won't, I won't go into that. But also, you know, just, just seeing people in the film as well, in the friendship group, each of the friends had a very distinctive individual character. So there's no lack of individu- individuality. There was a lack of individualism. You know, <laughs> people were always acting for others, not just themselves. And, you know, you saw in the, I think the way you see people behave as well. It, I, it got captured for me in this lovely sign, which I'd love to see posted all over British tubes and everything, which has, it says, even the greatest masterpiece becomes noise when emanating from headphones, right? And it has this nice little graphic of someone with the headphones on with no noise coming out with the caption masterpiece and one person with headphones and like, you know, the, the jagged lines, and the noise coming out saying noise. Now, what I, what I think is really interesting about this sign is it's not telling anyone to do anything. It's not saying keep the noise down, consider your, your neighbours. It's simply reminding them quite subtly, really, that if the noise leaks from their headphones, it will be noise to others. It won't be pleasant. And that's enough. Now, actually, you on the subway, you do see people behaving in these pro-social ways. You don't get disturbed by noise from people's headphones. Even though they're very crammed, everyone sort of respects each other's space. You don't need signs in the Tokyo subway against this man-spreading thing, which they did in New York, where people basically spread themselves out on their seats so much they're infringing on other people. You don't need announcements on the trains saying, you know, it's a very full train, please remove your bags from the seats so other people can sit down. I don't want to romanticise this. Obviously, uh, one of the downsides of cultures which make more emphasis of that pro-social aspect is it does make them more amenable, I think, to... As forms of conformism and control and also xenophobia actually so it's not all good point is it doesn't just help us to understand them again like all these things it casts the mirror back on ourselves so we can see a lot of us are worried that individualism has got to, gone too far on the other hand perhaps we think there's not much we can do about it because the alternative is this dull conformism and actually it's a way of understanding how there is a, an alternative option to that. We can be more pro-social, more community-minded without in any way giving up our own individuality. We started by, by saying this had been the most rewarding intellectual journey of your life. What things do you think you will retain and incorporate into your future, thinking and writing in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what people want to hear from this is some kind of, you know, Damascene conversion, sort of a complete sort of 180 degree flip. And um, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) And well, some people might want that. That's not the case. I think in in a way, what's difficult to answer about that question is almost everything's changed. But I think everything's changed generally quite subtly, perhaps. Um, So you can't point to a huge thing. I think, for example, I could just give lists really of examples. One of them I've kind of alluded to already. Before I did this book, I, I was already conscious that I, what I've called attending is an important aspect in thinking, in really thinking well and philosophically, which has been neglected. And I think my understanding of what that entails has been deepened a lot 
by my uh, reading of Japanese philosophy. I think politically, um, the idea of, of harmony in China is something which, you know, is not, I don't see it as being a competing value to freedom and liberty, but it's, uh, it's something which I think is lacking in our rather fractious democracies in which the will of the voter is taken to be so sacrosanct that it basically ends up with with division and this idea of the relational self as well um i think has been extremely valuable to me because i mean it's quite personal in a way i i'm kind of by nature i think something of an individualist I, i've never been hugely subject to peer pressure and so on and so i've always kind of valued that individuality at the same time like most people you know i don't like selfishness and i do worry about insularity and i think this understanding of the self in relational terms has kind of opened my eyes quite a bit i think to how it's it's is possible I mean, I'm repeating myself, but how, how it's possible to both be a, a real distinct individual, not just sink into the crowd, and yet more properly acknowledge your dependence on others. And actually, in, in a strange way, that's something the whole book has brought out to me. The whole book is, in a sense, a massive collaboration across time and space. It's a collaboration with thinkers of the past, cultures of the past, but also people I've interviewed today, and of course, it's not just that. It's also the whole process of publishing a book it involves publishers, agents. I've become much, much aware of, of, of that and appreciated it more deeply. And so actually, one thing that's very nice was that book, I haven't had a book launch uh, before, apart from one for a collection of interviews about 20 years ago. I thought I was going to have a book launch this time. And it's partly because I was, I'd turned 50 as well. And I thought it'd be in lieu of a birthday party. And it was, we had it in this bookshop and there were all sorts of people there, many of whom I perhaps hadn't seen a lot over the years. Some I hadn't seen for a long time. But having everyone in that room, you know, sort of really made vivid to me, you know, how much my life is not just my life. It's the story of my interrelations and interactions with others. And I, I find that quite moving, actually. I was talking to Gillian Virginie about his book, How the Wild Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy. It's published in hardback by Granta Books. You can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 